Okay, morning. Hello, everyone. Um, so it's the last week in January. We've got several days left until the first month of 2018. I'm wondering if any of you have made any New Year's resolutions. Uh, hands up if anybody, if you're willing to share, have made any New Year's resolution, resolutions. Ooh, oh, okay, not many, right. Pete, do you mind if I ask you what one of yours was? Go on, nice and loud. Giving up coffee, well done, well done. Zach, say again. <laughs> we'll, we'll get on to that, that's the next question, don't worry. Zach, what was your New Year's resolution, if you don't mind sharing? Stop biting your nails. Yes, very important. And no one else? Just these two. Okay. Um, next question. Have you succeeded in your New Year's resolution so far? Pete. Partially. Okay, good. That's better than nothing. What are we down to? Ah, well done. <laughs> and Zach, how are we doing? Let me, let me check the floor. We're good. No nails. Okay. Not great. Okay, that's all right. Better. That's what we want. Um, so, don't know if you've, anyone else has made any New Year's resolutions. I tend to make a few. But I looked online for 2018, and I found that an organization called YouGov, who you may be familiar with, they're a surveying company. So they will do surveys of particular um, questions, take it to the public, to a certain number of the public, and just get a general idea of some statistics. And so I looked up 2018 New Year's resolutions. So YouGov sent an online, app, um, online survey to 1.2 million people, and they developed what they believe were the top 10 New Year resolutions for 2018. So I thought I'd share them with you briefly and we'll go down the list one by one. So if we can have the first one, please. Eat better. Now, I need to learn that one, but Kerry will know that salad will never be on the menu on a weekend, on a weekend or a weekday. It's not happening, but I could do better. Number two, exercise more. Uh, yeah, yeah, I need to work on that. I'd like to go swimming on Saturday mornings, but it's Saturday morning, so that's what beats it, so, yeah. Number three, spend less money. Yep, very important. Number four, self-care. So this could be uh, perhaps um, looking after yourself, connected to exercise, making sure you're fit and healthy. Number five, read more books, build a little bit more knowledge, a bit more intellect. Very good. I love that one. Number five, that will always be on my New Year's resolution. Got a few books recently. The library is building up. It's Number six, uh, learn a new skill. Yep, so that could be anything at all. Just gain a new skill, learn something different. Number seven, make new friends. Very important. Widen your friendship group. Get to know people that are different from you. Number eight, get a new job if you need one. Or work harder in your job or improve your job. Very good. Number nine, get a new hobby, yep. And then number 10, focus more on appearance. Jim, that was, you said it, you said it. <laughs> yeah. 
guilty pleasure, Kerry and I, we watch this show called First Dates. I don't know if anyone's seen it. No shame, it's hilarious. But that is definitely, the people that go on that show do not need to have that as a New Year's resolution. Um, so those are the top 10 New Year resolutions of 2018. Those are the 10 things that 1.2 million people are focusing and concentrating on trying to change about themselves, in trying to improve themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with making New Year's resolutions, because a resolution is just another word for change. You want to transform yourself. You want to improve yourself. You want to do better. But you don't need to resign it to just January the 1st. Whenever you feel you need to make a change, that's when you make a change. That's when you attempt something new, do something different for your own improvement and for your own benefit to transform. And God wants the same for us. God wants us to be resolved. God wants us to change. God wants us to transform. And he doesn't just ask us to do that on January the 1st, as beneficial as that is. He asks us to do it all the time. Every day he's asking us to resolve, to be different, and to transform. So what I want to present to you this morning is God's different way for you to transform. God's alternative path to your change. I want to give you God's New Year's resolution for you. So we will read, if you have a Bible with you, from John chapter 12. If you've got it on your phone, look it up. Otherwise, it will be on the screen behind me. It's John's Gospel, chapter 12, and it's verse 23 to 25. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23 to 25. Okay, and it starts with Jesus saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So part of God's New Year's resolution for us begins like any other New Year's resolution or any other change we want to make. We have to get perspective on what we want to change. We have to make that change. And then we have to reflect on that change. We have to see the benefit of that change. So starting with getting perspective, let's begin where this first verse, 23, positions us. So it reads as... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So let's start with glory, getting the perspective of God's glory. What is the object of your glory? What is the thing or the person that if you had a football field floodlight, you would want it to shine on that person and thing because you just think that is so amazing, that is so wonderful, that is so brilliant. If you could proudly boast in an object, again, a person or a thing, 
what would you just reel off boasting in? What would, you, what would you gossip about? What would you just can't be able to contain yourself to mention to other people? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Definitely on your own. Okay. Um, what would you joyfully delight in? What person or thing would you just jump up and down over? Would you go to your friends, go to your family, go to your work colleagues and just talk about all the time so that you are just the annoying person by the water cooler? What do you put your glory in? Kerry and I were watching a film last night that Ash and Beth Dark kindly lent us when we were around their house. It's Disney's Inside Out. Every time I preach, Disney always gets in there. I don't know why, but they're great. Inside Out, I recommend it. And the story is about a girl and her, her feelings, her, her senses, what's going on in her mind. And she's got this character called Disgust, uh, called Anger, called Fear, called Joy, and called Sadness. And throughout the film... It's a story of her growing up, really, of experiencing these different emotions and senses and just seeing how her life develops. And as we're watching the film, you're noticing that it's funny because her life, they've captured people's lives so well. As you grow up, you glory in things. As you mature, those things differ, you change. So as a baby, I assume, you glory in milk. Milk is the thing. You want milk, and that is it. That will feed you. That's all you want. When you become a young child, you glory in the latest toy that you've got for Christmas, perhaps. When you become a teenager, you glory in the pretty girl in the class with you opposite the table. When you get into your first job, you glory in the salary that you're earning. When you go to university or higher education, you glory in the knowledge that you're enjoying, and so on and so forth. So as you mature and as you grow up, you're glorying in different things. You're taking delight in different things. Different things are the focus of your life and what you pour into it. Confession time, if I can be honest, because we're family. The things that I tend to glory in to my own detriment, and there's a difference between being grateful for things, which God has given us, and glorifying in things making them an idol, making them the things we bow down and worship. My two things, if I'm being honest, was my education and my job. Sometimes I think to myself when I'm feeling particularly proud, oh, you know what, Jonathan Dirk, you were rubbish at school, you didn't apply yourself, you failed all your GCSEs, true story, but don't do it if you're young and doing that now, failed everything, had no prospects, but I pulled my socks up, Pulled my finger out, got my head down, worked hard, studied, did my research papers, revised my exams, got to go to college, got to go to uni, got to go to Bible college. I am worth something. I am definitely up there. Glory to Jonathan in the highest. Amazing. And then the other thing I glory in is my work, which is quite similar. So again, sometimes in my heart of hearts, I'll develop a bit of pride and think, again, because I had such a rubbish education, which was my own fault, Look at me, I worked as a shoe salesman, worked my way up, worked in, in, social, um, in social housing, awful, but yeah, that side, worked in social housing, now look at me, yeah, look where I've got to, look what I'm doing, look how much I'm earning, oh, look at my status, look at my title, blah, 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 and in the quietness of my heart, which you guys probably won't see or hardly anyone will, there'll be that glorifying 
in my achievements, in my success, in what I've done. So what is the thing that you glory in? Jesus is the glory of God because Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. That's as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we believe. Giving it to you straight, Islam is wrong. Jesus is not some great prophet only. Buddhism is wrong. Jesus is not just some enlightened man. All these other Eastern mystical religions that we'll hear on the news are false and wrong because Jesus is so much more than a moral teacher, a great prophet, or an enlightened man. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you've heard and seen Jesus, you have heard and seen God himself. So Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is divine. Jesus is deity. Jesus is that supreme being that unbelievers or people that don't know God think might be out there. Jesus is that thing. Jesus is that person. So how then is God glorious? Well, in Jesus, God is glorious because he is present. Jesus is the presence of God. So God came to earth as a baby. We tend to only mention it at Christmas time a lot of the time. But Jesus came as a baby and he was God in the flesh. That little crying baby was the glory of God. That little tiny baby. And look around and you'll see little babies. God was one of those. God, God encapsulated his glory into a little tiny baby. That baby Jesus shone out, cried out, wailed out the glory of God. So in Jesus, God is glorious because of his presence. The life then that Jesus went on to, went on to live was a life just expressing the glory of God. Jesus said, I don't do these things I do. I don't teach these things I teach because of my glory. I only do what I see the Father in heaven doing, and to him do I give the glory. Jesus came to give glory to God, and he did that in his birth. He did that in his life. Jesus knows how we feel because he put on the same flesh that we live in. He suffered the same way. He was tired. He was hungry. He was stressed the same way that we do and are in our lives. And he lived a life similar to us, worked a job, had friends, had family, but he did it all to the glory of God. So in God, sorry, in Jesus, God is, God's glory is present. His presence is glorious. The next, in Jesus, God is preeminent. Big word there. Jesus has the preeminence. So Jesus is prominent. Jesus is first and foremost. It's all about Jesus. The reason we live, the reason we gather, the reason we do what we do, we are who we are, is because Jesus is first and foremost in our lives. And the best place where Jesus had the preeminence, where God was most expressed in Jesus, was on Calvary, was on the cross as he was dying. Other people looked at that scene, and you can visualize it in your heads. Others looked at that scene and thought, it's a naked Jewish 
single bloody man dying as a criminal on a cross, which is utter humiliation and shame. That's what most people were thinking. That's what most people today think. But God, when he was seeing that scene, saw his glory being expressed and displayed in the biggest way possible. In the most glorious way, Jesus, in all his mutilation, in all his distortion because of what had happened to him, we thought how disgusting, God thought how delightful, because my glory is being shown. This is how much I love all of you. This is how much I desire all of you, that this is happening to my one and only son. So in Jesus, God is present. God's glory is present. In Jesus, God's glory is preeminent. It's first and foremost. It is number one. And in Jesus, God's glory is powerful. Jesus was born. He lived. He died. And he rose again for us. The power of God that caused Jesus to rise again is living inside us if we know and love him and if we follow him. The same power that conquered death is inside of you and I. God's glory is inside of you and I. So what is the glory of God, which I'm talking about? Excuse me. Two words are used in the Bible for the glory of God. The first word is a Hebrew word, and it's kavod. Kavod. And in the Hebrew and in the Old Testament, when this word kavod is used, it's interpreted, it's interpreted as immense, weighty, um, brilliant, majestic, superb. It's, it's heavy. That's how it's translated, both physically and just what it is anyway, the glory of something or someone, its heaviness, its immensity. Then in the Greek, so in this passage of scripture we've read, it's a Greek word called doxa. And the word doxa is translated as, I'll just read it here so I don't miss it, magnificent, excellent, splendor, and beauty. So two words to describe one thing, kavod, heavy, weighty, and doxa, splendor, majesty, beauty. Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is the splendor, the excellence, the beauty, the majesty of God. And all of that is expressed in his birth, his life, his obedience to God on our behalf, his death even, as hard as that is to understand, and his resurrection. Jesus is the glory of God. So, God's glory is displayed in his presence, in his preeminence, and in his power as well. So for God's New Year resolution for us, we need to start with the right perspective, the right view, and it begins with the right perspective of God. We need to see God firstly as glorious. God is absolutely over and above everything and everyone. He is glorious beyond anything. So let's go on to the next verse, chapter 12, again, and verse 24. And it says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
So, we've seen the perspective, which is God's glory. Now comes the change itself. Now comes the action, actually doing our resolution. It's all well and great on December the 31st to write down your New Year's resolutions and think, got the perspective, can't wait to actually do it. January the 1st uh, comes, you wake up ready to do your run to get fit and healthy, and you're like, oh, actually... You know, the rest of that wine is there. I should probably finish that off first, clear it. The rest of that Christmas food's there. I should probably eat that before I start something. The action can be the hardest part. And it's no different for God's resolution for us, for what God wants for us, which is death. God's New Year resolution for us is to die. But let me unpack what I mean by that. So, how can something grow from something from that from something infertile. How can life come from death? How can something come from nothing? With everyone and anything else, this is impossible. It doesn't quite make sense. It's not how it works. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I'm no gardener, which Kerry and the rest of the family will vouch for. I don't really touch the garden except just to push the lawnmower around and just to do a relatively good job. Kerry deals with everything else, although if you did see our garden, it's looking a little bit of a mess at the moment. But it has been winter, so that's okay. It does look a bit of a mess anyway. But if you look at a garden or if you look at plants, etc., and I'm really trusting in what I've learnt from uh, Kerry and others because I know nothing about this. I even, after reading that passage of scripture, had to check. Okay, let me just double check now. Is this what this certain plant does? Okay, because I don't want to look a bit of an idiot when I get up and say, this is what happens. And it doesn't. But I'm told it does, so don't worry. Poppies. Poppies. They grow. They sprout. Whatever it is they do, they blossom, blah, blah, blah. I don't really understand. (laughs) Is my language just showing my lack of understanding with poppies? Poppies grow. I'll keep it really basic. Poppies grow they have seeds, poppies die, the seeds go into the soil with that dead poppy, but then the poppy seeds grow into more poppies. Am I right? Okay, good. Excellent. Good. So that's that's what happens to poppies. Poppies are like people, or people are like poppies when they do God's resolution, when they follow God's way, which is to die. When we die, we will be alive. We will truly live. So if you want to truly live, then you have to die. And just a few things that this encompasses. First of all, we need to die to ourself. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Deny yourself. If you pick up a cross, and you remember those crosses in the Roman worlds were forms of execution. It would be like our version of an execution chair if we still did that, or the gallows. When Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, he was saying, pick up your death warrant, pick up your method of execution, deny yourself, die to yourself, because as you follow me, it's not going to be about you, it's going to be about me and my glory, and you're going to get to come on board with that. I'll show you why that's a brilliant thing in a moment. But first of all, pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Die to your identity. Abandon who you think you are. 
We live in a time now, and you can just look on the news or you can look on any articles that are on social media. We live in a time when identity is the controversial issue at the moment. How, who am I? How am I who I am? We've got these things called identity politics or things to do with your gender identity, your biological identity, uh, your identity as a young person and where you find that or who you find that from. Identity is one of the key things being debated about at the moment and that what people are very passionate about. And Jesus says, die to your identity. Abandon it. Don't find your identity in who you think you are. Don't find your identity on, in your gender. Don't find your identity in your biology. Don't find your identity ultimately, I mean, in your job, in your pay salary, in the wife or husband you have, in the children you've grown, in the school that you went to. Don't find your identity in things that ultimately won't last past the day you die. Find it in something more meaningful than that. Die to yourself. Give up yourself. The next after that, he says, or rather a part of it, die to your success. We all have jobs here, or most of us, or all of us have done things in our lives that we kind of tick off and we're proud of. We've achieved, we've done something. Die to your success. As grateful as we are for the jobs we have and the families we've produced, as grateful as we are of the homes that we've done up, as grateful as we are of the clothes that are fashionable that we get to wear, as grateful as we are for the friendships we've developed, ultimately they won't get us to where we need to be if we want to truly live and be alive. Ultimately, we need to die to our success. We need to not put our whole eggs, all our eggs, in the one basket of this is what I've done, this is what I've achieved, that's how I'm going to define myself, that's how I'm going to identify myself because of how much goes into my bank account, because of the people I know and name drop, because of this, that, and the other. It's not about that. Jesus says, die to yourself, die to your success. Abandon your achievements. And then lastly, die to your glory, which is connected to the first one. What is the thing that you take glory in? What is the thing that you proudly boast about or joyfully delight in? Jesus says, Die to it. Die to worshipping yourself. Die to loving yourself. Die to your glory. Abandon your story. We all have a story to play. We live in a very individualistic life nowadays. Back many hundreds and thousands of years ago, it was all about community. Your identity, your achievements were found in your community in your tribe, in your, in your family, whereas now we're very individual. We tend to think, what have I succeeded in, or who am I in and of myself? It's very much isolated. But God says, abandon your story. Abandon all of that and be part of my bigger story. There's a guy who I'm really appreciating at the moment, which I'm sure most of you won't know, but you'll see me tweet it or something, a guy called William Gurnall, uh, and he was an Englishman, and he was just a local village pastor, pretty much a nobody, which is great, that's why I love him, um, and he wrote a book, which I'm really getting a lot of goodness from at the moment, and he wrote this one throwaway line, which really caught my heart, and he said, along the lines of, just paraphrasing it, 
Life is like a stage. You're an actor. You take one or two steps, do a turn, and then you walk off. That's it. You take one or two steps, do a nice pirouette. I won't do one. And then you turn off. And that's your life. Life is like steam from a kettle. You hear it rumbling, like birth. You see the steam go off. That's your life. You take a turn, you turn back, and you're gone. That's how short our lives are. That's how quickly they're over and done with. So don't live for yourself only because it won't amount to anything worthwhile and it'll be over like that. Why not instead live for someone and something greater, the bigger story than your one little act on that play that is life? Why not be part of the bigger story, which is God's story? Why not be part of the grand design so that even when our lives are over and done with, we played a part in the bigger story. We had a part to play in the greater narrative, the greater show. So, it is dying with Christ that we are made alive with him. So it's when we die with Jesus, like when a poppy dies, that we will produce the fruit of life, that we'll live a real life. So, we've got the perspective That's the view we have of God, which is he is glorious. We've got the action, which is the hard part, dying to ourselves. Now we get to the benefit of all that. So, so far you might be thinking, this is a little bit gloomy, a little bit somber. I don't think I'm enjoying this, but it's good. And we're getting on to the results of all of this. Once we see the glory of God, once we die to ourselves, ouch, that one hurts, We then go on to the next part. So John chapter 12 and the last verse, 25, it says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Our lives are ultimately comfortable and easy. Relatively speaking. We live in the 21st century in Great Britain, and we live relatively comfortable lives. All these things we get to enjoy, we've got things like high-speed technology with all these iPhones, iPads, uh, Bluetooth things. And you know what? I'm no techie, which my small group can vouch for. Ash and Beth are laughing, and Kirsty, it's so true. I know nothing of this stuff. All I know is we live in a very technological world, although I still enjoy chalk and a blackboard. That's okay. Um, We live in this technologically advanced world, high-speed communication, these comfortable clothes, free education, NHS, all these family and friends just on our doorstep, or if they're not, we get to speak with them through a screen or on the telephone or on a mobile. We get all this social media, all this amazing food that's produced for us, such variety We've got all these hobbies and activities, etc., etc. We live very blessed lives, whether we want to or not, compared to history. We live comfortable lives. But Jesus says, loving your life, you will lose it. If we love our life more and over and above more than anything else, ultimately it will come to nothing. If the life we live now for these 70, 80, 90 plus years is all we live for, Jesus says the story will end, the show won't go on, 
and that will be it. Curtains, calls, and it's over. Jesus says if you love your life, if you invest your life in the things of the here and now, it won't come to anything. Why build up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy? Why don't you rather build up things for the kingdom? Why don't, why don't you rather build up things for the eternal life? Why don't you rather focus on what's to come in the there and then instead of focusing now in the here and now? Let's change our focus. Let's change our investments. Let's change what we're living and working for to things that will matter in the future, which is eternity. So living for the here and now will only leave you with nothing for the there and then. Again, make the difference. We are grateful, we are thankful, and we enjoy the pleasures that God's promised grace gives us. But if we live just for those things and give no thought to eternity, to life after this life, it won't count for anything. But then he also says, losing your life, you'll love it, which again seems like a paradox. That doesn't make sense. How can losing our life result in actually loving it and living it to its entirety, to its fullness. When we stop living for ourselves and start living for God, we're willing to sacrifice everything because we know just how worthy he is. When we lose our lives and we play a part in the bigger story that's God, our lives will actually be worth something amazing. We'll be investing in something greater than ourselves. We'll be part of a bigger plan. We'll be part and parcel of his glory. We'll get to enjoy his glory and his majesty and his immensity, his love, his greatness. We'll get to enjoy his mercy, his compassion, his kindness because we're with him and we are not living for ourselves. We're living for God instead. And just to say as well, the greatest benefit I would suggest and put to you all about this, because it can seem quite tricky, it can seem quite hard, you know, we, are, we want to give God all the glory and not ourselves. Then we've got to die to ourselves to make sure God gets the glory. And then apparently we'll get to live. But how will we get to live? And the how we get to live is what makes it worth it. Joy, joy, joy and more joy. Our lives will be marked by nothing, or rather should be marked by nothing, but absolute, incomparable, and joy, inexpressible. Peter says, if you know the glory of God, you will know joy unspeakable, or joy inexpressible. When we stop living for ourselves, start living for God, giving him all the glory, our lives can, if we choose it to be, the most joyful thing in the whole world. Every day, no matter what will happen, we will live lives marked by joy. Truth be told, I didn't feel joyful this morning because Kerry and I got to our car and it turns out it's not working. So on top of that, we found a little scratch on it. So we're not sure if we got keyed at some point. I don't know. It's not too bad though. Either way, it was frustrating and it was annoying. And I don't really feel particularly joyful. But the truth is, we have a different kind of joy. It's a joy in spite of life's circumstances. Whatever happens, whatever situations we experience, by all means, grieve, feel sad, 
go through the motions, which I believe is healthy to do so, but just hold on to the fact that actually, deep down inside, no matter what happens to us, because we know just how amazing God's glory is, because we have died to ourselves and we're part of a bigger story, joy will permeate our entire lives. Whether you feel it or not, whether you see it or not, joy is in there and it can burst out of us. So live a life marked by joy. That will be the true living that we'll get to live when we die to ourselves. So just to wrap it up then and close, working it out. We've heard all the theory. We've read the passage of scripture. How do we apply it? How do we go out these doors now and start to put it into practice? Um, First thing, I always like to do a little tiny ruffle of a feather. That's okay. First thing is, going along the lines of getting the right perspective, God is glorious. Remember this, God is glorious, you're not. God is glorious, you're not. You're amazing, by all means. You know, look at your bodies, amazing. Look at how you function. You can self-heal. You can see, you can hear, you can feel, but you didn't contribute anything to that. God gave you all of that. God is glorious. When we actually start to see how glorious and how much bigger and better and mightier and powerful and weightier and immenser and beautiful he is, we'll start to actually realize, oh yeah, I really am just dust and clay. He is so much more than that. So God is glorious, we're not. Then, die to your glory because living it will leave you with nothing. So die to yourself your success, and your glory because living for those things won't be worth it and won't get you to where God wants you to be, which is with him, enjoying his glory. And then lastly, resolve to live a life for God's glory and you'll not only have the best year in 2018, you'll have the best life you could ever live. If we live for God's glory, if we die to ourselves, and if we live a life marked by joy, we'll have a great 2018, no matter what will happen. But more than that, if we hold on to it, our lives will be the best lives we could ever live, regardless. And I'll just finish with this quote, again, from a gentleman I really admire, which I'm sure most of you here know, because I'll mention him in a lot of my sermons. A guy called Jonathan Edwards, an American clergyman, again. And he, when he was young, probably younger than my age, at my, yeah, my age, he was about between 20 and 25, he wrote down 70 or so resolutions, and he made sure he would read these resolutions every week to remind him to keep on course. And the first resolution, which influences all the other resolutions, is this one. Resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own profit, good, and pleasure in the whole of my life. Resolved, I will live in such a way that God will get the most glory out of me and I will get the most profit and pleasure. We don't glorify God so that we live rubbish, mundane, boring, sad lives. When we really glorify God, that's where we'll get the most glory. Uh, That's where we'll get the most pleasure, the most profit, and the most goodness that we could ever enjoy in 2018. Uh, and the rest of our lives. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's, is that, 